And I think a key element is, of course, what Ruth emphasizes over and over again, which is seeing ourselves as part of the same shared story. Shalom from Jerusalem and welcome back to another episode of the Quran Podcast. We are um, now less than just a few days away from Shavuot and to uh, to get us ready for Shavuot, we're delighted to be joined by Rabbi Dr. Stuart Halpin, um, our friend and colleague from uh, Yeshiva University, who is also the editor of Gleaning's Reflections on Ruth that we were proud to publish uh, a couple of years ago now in partnership um, with Yeshiva University. Um, Stu, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be back. So obviously there's lots going on. We're thinking about um, in the run-up to um, Shavuot um, and particularly about Megillah Rut. And for those who haven't um, opened Gleanings yet, because if you've bought it or you haven't bought it yet, um, there's so many different topics um, that are covered in Gleanings that we can kind of extract and learn from Megillah Rut. But what kind of things are you thinking about this year as we approach Shavuot? Um, so I'm thinking about Ruth's uh, relevance to the current uh, immigration crisis. Um, there's so much that the book has to say, and I'd love to get into it with you, about um, how we should treat the other, how we should treat the stranger, um, and how the story might inform how we think about geopolitics today. Um, but I want to start on a somewhat lighter note. Uh, around six years ago, or seven years ago, in, in the before times when people used to go to these things called Broadway shows, uh, there was a revival of the most famous Jewish uh, character on all of Broadway that, of course, is Tevya, the dairyman, uh, and Fiddler on the Roof. And in the play's revival, there was actually a great debate. There was a debate because the, uh, the new director of this revival fought with the original lyricist, then 91 or 92 years old. Uh, now the lyricist is 98, still uh, going strong. And they argued over exactly how Jewish Tevya should be. What do I mean? Well, the opening frame that the director wanted to have the play begin with and end with was Tevya, Bali Kipa, without a, without a head covering, uh, entering a line of otherwise anonymous refugees. He would put on a, a parka, he literally removed his kippah, and would march along with some unnamed others uh, to destinations unknown. So this, covered in the New York Times as Filler on the Roof gets a debated update, was of course controversial because it raises all sorts of interesting questions over uh, why exactly uh, a Jewish refugee is not a refugee enough. What is it about uh, the need for a universal sort of blank slate refugee that might uh, the new director appeal uh, thought might be more appealing towards audiences? Uh, and in general, raises interesting questions over does Judaism itself has something have something unique to say about? Uh, the immigrant, about the refugee. And of course, uh, with around 6.5 million refugees uh, from the Ukraine in the current uh, war, needing uh, the help and support of citizens worldwide, more than ever, I think, it's important to think about what role can we individuals, uh, we nations, uh, play in helping in helping others. And I think, as uh, I'm excited to think about with you, uh, we can think about how Ruth might inform our perspective on these issues. So, Stu, I think you're sort of quite well placed to talk about the the place of the immigrant um, in Jewish thought and thought in general. Uh, first of all, as a, a recent ole uh, to Israel, a recent immigrant to Israel, so mazel tov on that. Um, but also your work with the Provost at YU and at the uh, Strauss Center for Torah and Western Thought, where you focus on the interplay between uh, Torah, Judaism, Jewish thought, 
um, and sort of the, the world around us. Um, what is, and you know, in that bit, focusing specifically on America, known as the nation of immigrants, um, what are some of the ways traditionally that American society, the American sort of political society, um, has viewed the immigrant or has, has viewed refugees over the years? So, uh, first of all, I want to express my gratitude, of course, to America for uh, welcoming in my uh, my grandmother, uh, still behind her, going strong in well into her nineties, who had fled uh, Vienna uh, when uh, with her sister when uh, the Nazis surrounded uh, her school when she was a teen, and my great-grandmother took my grandmother and her sister uh, by the hand and said, we're, we're getting out of here, and America uh, welcomed them onto its shores. Unfortunately, my, my grandmother was on the wrong side of the boat and missed the Statue of Liberty, which is Chaval, <laughs> but I, I'm sure she caught it at some point after. Um, but from, from a political philosophy perspective, it's interesting to think about how uh, people, specifically America, has spoken about, thought about, written about uh, the immigrant. So, on the, so I would say, based on, a, based on a, a fantastic book called Democracy and the Foreigner by Bonnie, Professor Bonnie Honig, uh, she notes that Americans have thought of immigrants in one of two ways, largely. One is this, the, let's say, the weak and wretched immigrant, the one who is uh, going to uh, take away uh, resources, is going to clog up the streets, is going to be hanging out uh, on the subways, causing trouble, um, and they're not going to be contributing anything to society. They're just going to be a drag, and we should keep them out for our own benefit. On the other hand, there's the powerful and dangerous immigrant. There are those who are opportunistic, who steal our jobs, they're overly ambitious, uh, they come here with uh, asking for uh, education in different languages, and they are um, they're getting in our way in, in, in an active sense as opposed to uh, being a drag on our resources. Um, there's also uh, an additional perspective that she offers on immigrants, which is that they are like super human. So there's, there's three ways that she talks about. The third way is that this, this super immigrant who is going to unabashedly bring to us diversity, energy, talents, industry, maybe even a couple of new awesome recipes. Um, I don't know if, if bringing chillants to America counts as an awesome recipe, but I leave <laughs> that to your listeners. Um, but it's it's the, the almost, uh, let's call it the Superman immigrant who's going to come with his or her magical powers and, uh, and the ability to fly and shoot lasers and, and be super strong. And by that I mean um, almost in an, in an inhuman way, uh, somehow bring greatness to their found country. So again, there's the, the immigrant who is, uh, who is a, a, a leech, for lack of a better term. There's the immigrant who's, who's overly ambitious and that somehow gets in our way. And there's the immigrant who is beyond, beyond human with his or her abilities, which are, which are alluring in how incredibly different and amazing they are. So these, of course, are, are somewhat... Um, these are, these are uh, painting in broad strokes. These are, these are categories. Um, but I think it's interesting to think about how American Jews have uh, fit into these categories. Of course, there's a, a bit of the perception of Jews in, in all of these uh, historically, of course, and there's unfortunately still much simmering anti-Semitism in America. Uh, but by and large, the American project has welcomed, has welcomed in Jews who have contributed to numerous industries, uh, including Hollywood, though the recent uh, Hollywood Museum that has sprung up had to apologize for trying to hide or, or ignore the fact that Jews had effectively built Hollywood, and there's now going to be a permanent exhibit to that effect. But 
Uh, they weren't so enthusiastic about sharing that story originally uh, to, of course, all manners of uh, science um, and, uh, and technology and politics and the like. Uh, American Jews have actually won 129 Nobel Prizes, which is around a third of America's total. So whether or not people have accepted uh, or are accepting Jews in America wholeheartedly, uh, Jews have continued to strive to contribute to the American project, which of course, uh, shameless plug for our Strauss Center volume, Proclaim Liberty Throughout the Land, the Hebrew Bible in the United States, the American project has, of course, been inspired from its very inception by the Jewish story, by the story of the Hebrew Bible and the uh, ancient Israelites entering the Promised Land. So I think Sacha Kol, sort of summing, summing up, America itself uh, owes a, uh, a debt of gratitude to Judaic ideas, to the, uh, the Israelite story, and Jews, in return, owe a debt of gratitude to uh, America for welcoming us to its shores over over its hundreds of years of history. And um, I think provide a helpful window into thinking about the uh, the Jewish character or the Moabite-turned-Jewish character that uh, we're going to be thinking about and reading about uh, over the coming days. So, that, I mean, the two-sided approach to immigrants that you mentioned reminds me of David Badil writes in his book, Jews Don't Count, about the idea of like, Jews are Schrodinger's white, sort of like depending on the politics of the person, a Jew may be considered either like the basis, like the rats in the sewer, or they might be controlling the world or like both simultaneously. I guess flipping it around from like a Jewish perspective, there's also like a two-sided, like how Judaism views like Jews, our role as immigrants, and also how Judaism views kind of how we should treat immigrants. So what do we, from like the classic Jewish sources, maybe even starting with Megillah wrote, how do we see that through the years? Yeah, so over and over again, the, the Bible emphasizes to love the stranger. So that's a commandment, of course, to Jews to love the other. Or around 36 times in the Bible, we are reminded to, to treat the stranger kindly because we, of course, were strangers in a strange land. By the way, I would mention, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the book that you raised, which makes the, I think, very important point that while uh, entertainment news is full of stories of people uh, picketing over uh, lack of representation in all sorts of media, uh, you don't really see Jews uh, picketing when uh, Jewish characters are cast uh, or rather are played by non-Jewish actors or actresses, which is uh, fairly common. Uh, and... Uh, I think that actually relates back to the Tevye story of, for whatever reason, the perception is that the characters who are written as Jewish can somehow be uh, played by universalists or represented in a new, in a universal way, which of course is is rather curious. But but back to our specifically Jewish story, um, built into the very essence of our Jewish story is of course being a stranger. So not only uh, treating a stranger well, as the Bible reminds us over and over again. But uh, we ourselves were strangers from our first uh, father and mother, Avram and Sarah, of course, uh, journeyed first to the land of Israel, then then to Egypt. They kept wandering often, uh, Yitzhak and Yaakov, and of course, Yosef. Uh, they all wandered, and they all were in a strange land, and of course, the entire Jewish nation was in Egypt for hundreds of years. So there's no question that we ourselves are... Uh, essentially have gifted to the world through our through our wanderings and through our sufferings um, the charge of, of, of what, of thinking about in a deep way what it means to have emerged from another place and what emerging to a, into a new place or entering into a new place can contribute uh, to that new place, building uh, more promised lands wherever we find ourselves. And I think the Book of Ruth uh, is a fascinating window into that. So if we can, if we can jump into that a bit, 
the book is, of course, situated in what I like to call the biblical Wild West, the, uh, the days of Shefot HaShoftim, essentially a time in which no one was in charge. And so when there's very weak political leadership, um, when effectively people are left to their own devices, then uh, chaos reigns. And there is constant, uh, constant infighting, political turmoil, social turmoil, economic turmoil. It's probably no coincidence that in the time when effectively no one is in charge, there's a famine and Naomi's family uh, leaves the land of Israel to find food and shelter in the land of Moab. So this was not exactly an idyllic time of living in a promised land. And so what emerges amidst this story of destruction and the death of effectively all of Naomi's family around her, her husband, her sons, is this character that enters the scene. It's a character who enters the scene with a tremendous amount of historical, biblical baggage. Because Ruth, the Moabite, comes from a family not exactly known for its kindness. First of all, Moab is the product of, of incest, of, of uh, Lot sleeping with his daughters. Um, one of the daughters produced Ammon, the other produced Moab. Moab, the nation, seduces uh, the Israelites who left Egypt into worshiping Baal Peor, an idol. And they're rebuked in the book of Devarim for not greeting their cousins from the Abrahamic line, the Jews who had left Egypt with lechem and mayim, with bread and water. And so Ruth is probably, you know, 3,000 years, spoiler alert here, is likely the least uh, expected biblical heroine because uh, she's no queen like Esther. She's not someone... Uh, who comes from great yichus, an illustrious family. She's someone who comes from a nation uh, whose history with B'nai Israel, with the Jews, is, is a harsh one, is very fraught. And yet she ends up, again, you know, cover your ears if you don't know the end of the book, she ends up being the uh, ancestor of King David and eventual, eventually that of the Mashiach. So it's a really radical take on the power of an immigrant, one who is not born Jewish, but who throws in her lot with the Jewish people that this book offers. This idea that sort of from our earliest days, the Jewish people have been immigrants, who have been wanderers and, and have sort of made the most out of that. I, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on something that sort of came to me as you were speaking. So it's not fully formed, but perhaps we can, we can work together and, and build something out of it. Um, that I think similar to the story of, of Naomi and Rut. Um, you know, Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, although they are nomadic, they're wanderers, they are immigrants, whatever, whatever word we're going to use, um, they seem to also have a fair amount of power. You know, Avraham, they're speaking, he's constantly uh, talking to Parah, and he's getting involved in the, the War of the Kings and, and, and this and the other. Um, and then they, we sort of, if you leap forward, there's this sort of downfall as we go into slavery into Egypt, but, you know, rewind a little bit, you have... Uh, Yosef, who is also, he's part of this, you know, very illustrious but wandering family. He's then sold into effectively slavery, but then he rises uh, to the highest echelons of power. Um, and then as a nation, we fall down to becoming slaves and then we come out again and, and um, something we'll talk about perhaps a bit later of sort of air where uh, the story of Moshe and Ruth sort of interplay as well. Um, but not uh, me coming from a, essentially a, a, a fairly powerful family, and they sort of go and try and find food in Marv, and then we have Rut, who I think is Midrash says Rut, um, came from like the, the Moabite royal family. 
um, but then uh, sort of chucks it all away to become a convert and an immigrant refugee, perhaps even, um, going with her mother-in-law uh, to uh, back to Israel. Um, and then as the story progresses. Um, so I suppose, you know, what can we learn from that? If it's a real thing, you, you, you might think I'm talking nonsense, but what can we learn from, from that sort of the ups and downs of the Jewish immigrant story? About what, what is it in the story of Root that sort of acts as a, uh, an anchor point? So I think it's a really great point. So I think that um, in contrast to, well, first of all, thank you for bringing up the Midrash about uh, when I mentioned uh, Ruth not coming from an illustrious Yichus, uh, per Chazal, per the rabbis, uh, she actually was a princess of Moab, but I was referring to yeah. Shad, and but I think but I think you make a great point and that, that Chazal were likely there trying to demonstrate what Ruth gave up, what she walked away from uh, to essentially uh, leave leave her crown behind and become a, a poor immigrant into a foreign land. Uh, that might it could be that Chazal were making an educational point there about how much we should appreciate uh, Ruth. But but I think how much we appreciate her is is fully understood by exactly your point that you mentioned uh, Avram and Yitzchak and Yaakov and, and the royal position that, that Yosef was in. And I think in contrast uh, to those, uh, well, A, men, and, and B, those who had been promised a covenant by God, Ruth is the exact opposite. So she's, just to take a step back, she's, she's foreign, she's poor, she's widowed, she's female, she is most likely barren. She had been married for 10 years and didn't have a kid. And yet, in this very radical way, she ends up almost superseding, maybe not even almost, superseding the great patriarch, Avram, that we mentioned. What do I mean? Uh, in her Pledge of Allegiance to Naomi, her loyalty oath to accompany her back to Beit Lechem, she says, Ki el asher telchi eilech. Where you go, I shall go. And the only other time in all of Tanakh that that double lashon, that double language of lech lech, telchi elech, comes up is, of course, with Avram Avinu. Um, but if you think about it, the figures couldn't be more contrasted. As we've already alluded to, Avram is promised a covenant by God. Well, first of all, Avram, Avram is married. Uh, he's told by God to go to the land of Israel. He's reassured, bracha, you will be a blessing, and those who bless you will be blessed. And... He will become a great nation, very wealthy. All of these things are polar opposites to what Ruth was experiencing. Ruth was promised nothing. No one told her to go. She was widowed. She had no children, and her economic prospects could not have been worse. And so the idea that she takes this Abrahamic journey, she out Avraham's Avraham, is I think one of the more radical uh, points of the book, that you have you, and I mean this literally, you, anyone, no matter where they come from, has the opportunity to take a journey that could even supersede Avram Avinu. If you if you feel the call, if the if the spirit moves you uh, to throw in your lot with the Jewish people and contribute, uh, you never know where that's going to end up. You really never know because no one expected uh, Ruth to end up as the great ancestress of the Mashiach. Uh, she for sure did not. Um, but yet, that's of course how the story uh, plays out. That somehow she ends up a uh, arguably more noble figure. Than, uh, than Avram, despite her quite, quite humble beginnings. And what do you think that, like, the, I guess, like, the Chazalic or Rabbinic um, interpretations or understandings or approaches to teach us about how we should today, let's say, ref like, what should our responsibility towards, I guess we could talk about immigrants, but we could also talk about converts as well. 
Sure. So I think Chazal tend to emphasize, which I found quite fascinating because the word chesed only shows up, I think it's three times in the whole book of Ruth. And yet Chazal, uh, in one of their statements about the book, talk about how the entire reason we read this book is because of the lesson of chesed. And I think that what it teaches us is the, the, the sort of soft, quiet gesture, the, the loyalty, the let me walk with you on the way, let me, let me gather some food for you, which nowadays could be something to the effect of let me go to the grocery store for you, you just came here, you must be exhausted, do you need to come in and, and take a shower, would you like a warm meal? Let me show you how to get to the uh, post office, to the bank. These small gestures of kindness uh, to people who are new to a country um, is, uh, or, or to people who are, or are elderly, to people who are in need of a helping hand, uh, is something that Chazal emphasized, that this rather quiet story that sits not on the stage of politics, that sits not on the stage of military victories of kings and queens and international affairs, is one that has a tremendous uh, effect, a messianic effect and uh, an a ending of ultimate redemption that is lacking in other books. If you contrast Ruth with the story of Esther, the story of Esther, of course, ends with the Jews still in Galut. We have no idea how Esther and Mordechai's marriage uh, ended up. We have no idea if they had kids. And there's no, uh, there's no look at the end of that book towards the future in any effective way. There's just the mentioning of taxes. Uh, and that is, I presume, booed as strongly in your shul as it is in mine. But in the story of Ruth, there is the product of chesed um, that, that emerges as the ultimate end goal of, of nothing less than history itself. I think there's also the, uh, the point that, that Ruth herself is trying to make because uh, chesed is not easy. Chesed is not easy and it requires extra effort. And of course, it's no coincidence that uh, the child of Ruth and Boaz, the child that they produce, is named Oved, is named Worker, essentially. Uh, because both of his parents, uh, Boaz, of course, worked, worked in fields or oversaw the work in fields. Uh, Ruth, of course, uh, gleaned on behalf of herself and Naomi. Um, but it's a statement of principle that they made by naming their child Oved, and that is uh, that redemption requires hard work. It requires rolling up your sleeves, getting sweaty, getting bloody, getting bruised, uh, and going through the struggle of reaching out to those who are different, who might be laden with historical baggage. Uh, but yet, if you do reach out to them, uh, through whatever measure of chesed that Chazal emphasized, whatever measure of chesed you can offer, it might lead to something that can echo through the generations. Um, if we could then take a look, I suppose, at um, if we could take a look at, at Root as a, a character, um, and sort of how the other people in in the book uh, treat her. Um, you know, we've, we've spoken about Chesed and sort of general lessons we can learn from from that um, and apply them today. But the way that she's treated—it's something we discussed briefly before we started recording—and I and I had sort of bounced a couple of ideas around. Um, again, a, a, another not fully formed idea from me, um, but this, this idea that you know, Ruth could be seen as as a uh, an icon of um, Jewish female agency, um, whereas she isn't necessarily given all that much agency throughout the story. Um, so, so how how did her character come to the fore throughout the story? How is she treated by others in the book um so how does that play how does how does that affect um you know 
what we're talking about in terms of you know, as a lesson for Jewish ideas of the immigrant, of the refugee, of the other. So I think it, I think it's a great question. So I think the characters in the book don't quite know what to do with her, don't quite know how to classify her. So uh, some modern scholars have pointed out that after Ruth's rather rousing Pledge of Allegiance, uh, there is a rather long journey back to Beit Lechem with Naomi, in which not one word seemingly is shared. Uh, it could be that Naomi is rather... Um, I imagine she's she's grateful for Ruth's accompaniment, but she did try to talk Ruth out of it. Uh, she might, for all we know, uh, blame Ruth for the death of of one of her sons. I mean, uh, both of her sons married foreign women um, and both passed away. Uh, and Ruth was not able to produce a grandchild for her. So it could be that Naomi didn't exactly, at least at first, uh, embrace Ruth in return for Ruth's pledge of loyalty. Uh, there's a hint to this in the text because when Naomi returns to Beit Lechem, she says, Hashem. I left full of family, full of resources when I went to Moab and I have been returned empty. And, um, and it's a little insulting, I imagine, to Ruth, who's presumably standing right next to her, when Naomi says, I'm back here alone. I've I have nothing. No one's here to help me. Um, so it's it's rather striking that she offers that line in the presence of Ruth. And I think the sort the ambiguity over how exactly Ruth is to be dealt with extends to other characters in the book as well. When uh, Ruth uh, actually shows initiative by uh, by going to glean with the uh, with the men in the field of uh, of Boaz. Um, well, she goes to glean in the field with men, rather. She doesn't know that Boaz is going to show up. Um, then uh, there's a Nar, Hanital Valha Kutsrim, who's the, uh, I guess, the local field officer in the in Boaz's property. And when Boaz inquires as to who this young woman is who's gleaning in his property, the Nar says, uh, Twice mentioning that she's a Moabite. She's a Moabite who came back with Naomi. He doesn't actually say her name once, but does say that she's a Moabite twice. And some have noted that this might be some sort of racial discrimination on the part of, or ethnic discrimination on the part of this uh, Na'ar, who doesn't even think Ruth worthy of uh, having her name mentioned. Now, Ruth herself acknowledges the rather low expectation she had of being treated nicely in the Wild West that was Israel in the time of the Shoftim, um, when she is treated with kindness by Boaz, she says, Playing off of a Lashon of fellow Lashon, she says, Why are you recognizing me? I am a foreigner. Of course, acknowledging that the expectation is that uh, she would not be treated particularly nicely. And of course, Boaz himself is rather nervous about his interactions with Ruth. Uh, after Ruth goes to the Goran, the threshing floor, and uh, inspires Boaz to take action to attempt to eventually redeem herself and Naomi in chapter four of the book, Boaz is extremely concerned that no one know that she was there with him at night. She, of course, being a foreign woman, and we've already mentioned the historical baggage that Moabite women uh, carry around. And so throughout the book, there is a hesitancy uh, I think, for, for characters to, to, in a full-throated way, embrace Ruth. But um, you, you, you mentioned initiative. She actually shows striking uh, creativity and initiative in, uh, in her actions. Naomi, when, uh, when she suggests to go down to Boz at the threshing floor, 
says Boaz should tell you what to do. He'll figure it out. Uh, whereas uh, Ruth actually says, Ufarasa kenafecha alamatcha, that you, Boaz, should take action. Not waiting for Boaz to come up with the idea, but rather uh, Ruth herself comes up with the idea. So she she shows such striking initiative in uh, shaking Boaz from his slumber. Boaz, of course, I would be, re- be remiss if I didn't mention, he's the quote-unquote strongman of this story. He's supposed to be the one showing initiative. His name is Boaz, and him is strength. Or to coin a phrase, the force is strong in him. <laughs> and yet, it's not so strong. He needs Ruth to show up late at night um, while he's a little... Uh, for Schnickerd and inspire him to act in a way that's befitting his name to act as the Ishki Borchayel that he is supposed to be. Uh, so amazing is what Ruth did that she is then this this figure who is a Nachria, who is someone who is not accepted by those closest to her and those who uh, meet her, at least not initially, is actually blessed with an incredible blessing in chapter 4. Uh, she is told by the people of Belechem that the house that she is to build with Boaz should be like the house of Rachel and Leah, the matriarchs, the great matriarchs of the Jewish people. So it's quite the reversal. I know we tend to emphasize Vinahafochu on the story of uh, in the story of Esther on Purim, but it's quite a Vinahafochu here, where you have the least likely of all Jewish heroines ends up essentially canonized among the matriarchs of the Jewish people due to her incredible uh, initiative, due to her incredible. Um, uh, creativity and verve and courage in uh, sparking Boaz to action. And uh, that that legal theorist, that political philosopher, Bonnie Honig, who I mentioned, she has a particularly, I think, insightful point on Ruth's action. And the fact that it's Dafka, it's specifically because Ruth is a foreigner, that it maybe enables people, uh, enables both the characters, Naomi and Boaz, and the rest of Beit Lechem, uh, to act in a way that ultimately uh, reaches their aspire to values. So she writes as follows. The farness of Ruth is what enables her to supply the Israelites with a refurbishment they periodically need. She chooses them in a way that only a foreigner, and the more foreign the better, and there, uh, I'm sorry, that only a foreigner can, and the more foreign the better, and thereby remakes them as the chosen people. In other words, what she's saying is that it's specifically because Ruth comes from the outside that she's able to remind the Jewish characters and the Jews themselves in this time, this horribly uh, fraught and fractured and complicated period of the Shoftim, what they're ultimately supposed to be doing and how they're ultimately supposed to act. So Professor Honig continues to note that Moshe Rabbeinu, he died in Arvot Moab, in the land that Ruth was born into. And like Ruth, Moshe, of course, had come from the outside to lead B'nai Israel towards redemption. He had been raised in Paro's palace. He had spent decades in the land of Midian. And particularly because of that, because he was able, he was not stuck in the current malaise of the Shebud Mitzrayim, he was able to lead the Jews towards liberty. So too, the redemption that Ruth leads the Jews to. It is specifically because she's coming from the outside, she's coming with this difference. The, uh, of course, I won't even pretend to joke. I won't even joke that I'm coining this phrase. Uh, but the phrase that Rabbi Sachs, Zechonel of Racha, gave us the dignity of difference. That there's something specific to those who are able to come, uh, come from uh, from a, a mile away, and to contribute in a major way to the ultimate uh, fulfillment of a people's destiny.
So I think something you're suggesting maybe could be coined in the term, let's say immigrants, we get the job done, but taking it to also like contemporary times, you know, bringing it back to what we're seeing around us in the world today, you mentioned at the beginning, Ukraine, um, perhaps also reflecting on all of our experiences as, as, um, as immigrants or people who have moved from other countries here to Israel. Well, what can we take from root to, from root to today? So it's so fascinating. Of course, I do want to acknowledge that that all three of us sitting here uh, are, are are immigrants ourselves, of course, uh, to the land of Israel. Um, but uh, there's a Harvard, a Harvard professor named Marjorie Garber who recalled playing Ruth. We, we started by talking about plays and we'll end by talking about plays. Uh, she played Ruth in the late 1940s in a series of fundraisers sponsored by Hadassah to help raise money for Jewish refugees to make their way to the land of Israel, then of course called Palestine, after World War II. So the idea of Ruth literally uh, embodying the immigrant in uh, in contemporary modern times is something that has actually uh, taken place historically. Um, but I think as we think about Ruth, you know, there's, there's of course, of course, some caveats. We started with um, sort of the broad strokes of how people have thought of immigrants historically. And I would add some caveats to the Book of Ruth itself in the sense that it's not a simple book. It's deceptively deceptively deep for one that is a short four chapters. But I don't think the takeaway is that Ruth is... Um, Ruth is a sign that all foreigners should be accepted in all ways, in all forms, in all manners of society. Ruth, of course, is portrayed as an exceptional person with unique qualities. Um, on the other hand, Ruth does also also teaches us not to bar everyone, not to uh, think, uh, not to look askance at those who might be different. Um, the story is not one of policy. You know, we're not here to, to dictate what the policy is of, of countries who deal with the very real challenges of, of hundreds of thousands, even millions of people coming from foreign lands. You know, can't speak to the specifics of that. But what I can think to, what we can speak to uh, is the dynamic of what we as individuals can do in these, in these uh, times of acute refugee crises. And I think a key element is, of course, what Ruth emphasizes over and over again, which is seeing ourselves as part of the same shared story. Ruth's Pledge of Loyalty is, of course, dem a demonstration and articulation that she sees herself, despite history, despite her current standing, as playing a role in contributing to the story of the Jewish people in the land of Israel and to the faith of Israel. And so I think, most importantly, uh, as we think about how to interact with others, we must be powered by our faith, by our shared sense of destiny and commonality for those who are just showing up to our shores, um, for those who are maybe there, uh, and this of course is a, is a political issue, they are not fully Jewish, they are fully Jewish if they're coming from the Ukraine, this is something that we leave to legal experts and politicians to, uh, to debate and to decide. But uh, we do take some comfort in how Israel has been treating uh, these immigrants. Even recently, just a couple of days ago, in uh, on May 23rd, Israel's Interior Ministry announced, per the write-up in the Times of Israel, that will extend the tourist visas of Ukrainian citizens currently in Israel uh, for at least another month. And of course, beyond the level of, uh, of policy, what I think is most important for us to remember is, uh, is that theme that Chazal emphasized as the key takeaway of the book, that, of course, of chesed, that in order to help 
people integrate into a land, and in order to build a land by which people feel a shared sense of covenantal uh, destiny, then sometimes all you have to do is offer a welcoming smile. Maybe you can donate uh, some toys that you have lying around the house, uh, offer an Airbnb, uh, or even, uh, of course, uh, donate some money uh, to the cause. Whatever it is that you do, whatever it is that you contribute uh, to a person who is different, to a person who is in need, is something that can reverberate. And I think Ruth's resonance is exactly that, is that ultimately, uh, if when the redemption is to come uh, speedily in our days, we will be redeemed through the kindness, through the courageous actions of individuals whose uh, whose activities might be just as unexpected as that of Ruth, but who ultimately uh, will be canonized in the in the list of heroes of our people because they made the ultimate uh, redemption arrive that much quicker. Uh, I think that's a, a great place to stop. Uh, really wonderful nit to, to end on. Um, so I want to say thank you again to uh, our our fantastic guest, uh, Rabbi Dr. Stu Halpin, um, who uh, has written and edited uh, several books published by Magid Books, um, including uh, Gleaning's Reflections on Ruth, which is very relevant at this time of the year. He, we also mentioned uh, Proclaimed Liberty, um, which are both uh, products of the Strauss Center for Torah and Western Thought, um, both available from Cranwell.com, um, and you can find more information about everything Stu has done, the Strauss Center has done, uh, in the show notes. Uh, so, wishing Stu uh, a first of all thanks uh, and also a Chag Sameach and to all of our listeners um, a Chag Shavuot Sameach. Thank you so much. Well, that's all we've got time for for this episode of the Koran Podcast. Our thanks again to Rabbi Dr. Stuart Halpin for joining us. Um, as Alex mentioned, uh, you can find all the books, and particularly Gleanings, on the Koran website at koranpub.com. Alex, if you want to reach us, how can they do so? Uh, you can reach us on social media at Koran Publishers or via email podcast at koranpub.com. Um, if you do go to koranpub.com, uh, you can get 10% off your entire order using promo code podcast at checkout. Um, we'll link to all of uh, Stu's various books. Uh, in the show notes, as well as uh, the work that he does with the Strauss Center at YU. Um, listeners who happen to be in Israel over the course of June, keep your eyes peeled for some very exciting uh, things happening at Israel's Shavu HaSefer, Israel's book week um, at the first station in Jerusalem. More details to come. Um, but until then, Chag Sameach. <laughs>